2: Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport
0: Watermelon Flavor.
2: Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance Lemon Lime Flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90-minute workouts.
0: That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet.
2: So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at noonlife.com. The Iron Women podcast is proud to be supported by Zelio Skincare. Xelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like myself. I know I can count on their high-quality and long-lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest, sweatiest days when I'm racing and training. Have the peace of mind to perform at your
0: best without worrying about your skin and hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without include Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt All-Natural Chamois Cream,
2: Swim and Sport Shower Products, and Body Lotion. You can get 20% off at TeamZelios.com by using the code IRONWOMEN.
0: Yep, you heard it right. Get 20% off your Zelios order with the code IRONWOMEN at TeamZelios.com.
2: And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Godeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Alyssa, welcome back to the land of Wi-Fi and cell service. You just raced and won the Transpacus Ultra six-day, 165-mile running stage race in Big Bend Ranch State Park in Southwest Texas. How are you feeling? And I feel after that that intro, I should also ask, are you? What are you doing next? Going to Disneyland? <laughs> Hi, Haley. Thanks so much
0: for holding down the Iron Women for for us. While I was gone, um, I am back in civilization once again. Back from from the desert, and I'm, you know, it's been a whirlwind. There's like a lot of travel because basically where you race is so far removed from anything where there's like, you know, transportation options to get you in and out quickly. So it's a long day to get back home, but. And I'm exhausted from the week of racing, but I'm feeling good, had a lot of good time in the sun. So I think all of that vitamin D has been soaking in and just like, I, it was a really, really great week doing, doing the, um, should I call it the heavy backpack race? Is that like, I think I'm going to take that with me now. Thanks to Betty.
2: I know Betty Janelle, that heavy backpack race. I do want to, I need to ask specifically about your backpack and I have a lot of questions for you about your entire race experience. So even though you are exhausted, you're going to be here on the hot seat here for a second because we need to know what happened. So first I just want to recap the stages. So the race started with a non-competitive six mile prologue followed by four days of racing about a marathon each day in a final 56 mile day. And you had to carry all of your gear, your sleeping bag, your food, your extra clothes, in that heavy backpack for the duration of the race. Did I, did I get that all right? You got it. Yes. Okay. So I put your time of 41 hours and 46 minutes over 165 miles into one of those online running pace calculators. And it said you averaged about 15 minute miles and that seems pretty quick. So did you follow your plan to be the desert tortoise, you know, the between the tortoise and the hare, we're going to be the desert tortoise, and did you keep a steady 15-minute per mile pace throughout all six stages, or did you hair things a little bit and go out a little too fast? I
0: totally threw my plan out the window because I was so excited to be there and be racing, and I felt good, and I was rested, and it was cool that first day in the morning, and there was a young guy named Peter who like led the race from start to finish. And he went out really fast. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go out with him. And so I threw, yeah, I threw out my pacing strategy out the window and I was like telling myself I was keeping it in check. But in hindsight, of course, I wasn't like looking back at all of the elements and the factors I should have been taking into account when I was doing those first couple of days. So I definitely went out, um, went out, A little harder than I I should have for sure, especially because those are the days when your pack is the heaviest, right? And as it turned out for us during the week, those first couple days were also the hottest. So we had two very, very hot days, Monday and Tuesday, that were like the first two competitive racing days. We had the the prologue stage is on Sunday, and that actually, surprise, it was going to be six miles instead of three miles. So we did that um, Sunday afternoon and then, you know, the, the quote race competition starts on Monday and, and those were very hot days in the desert sun. And then luckily things kind of turned for us by Wednesday and things cooled down a bit to which might've been what, what ultimately saved me because I did go out pretty hard in those first couple of days.
2: I saw on the smash fest queen team SFQ page that you told your coach, Hillary Viscay, you found the 165 mile six day race. Mentally next level compared to your five-day 273-mile record-setting run on Vermont's long trail last year. What made the trans Ultra so challenging? Haley, I think, you know,
0: and uh, granted I've been home for a day, right? So I haven't had a ton of time to really, like, reflect on things and kind of sum things up probably in the most coherent of fashions. But what really struck me out there was that you – You have to want to be out there and you you have to know like that you want to be out there. Right. And it has to come from yourself. And so the adventures and the challenges that and the races that I've done to date. Right. Like you even if I'm traveling to a race alone, you have a race course lined with fans cheering you on and keeping you going and they're all right there. And, you know, if you're having doubts that morning, you can maybe send a text message to someone at home or call someone at home and get a quick pep talk. Right. Or on the long trail, I was surrounded by about 10 of my family and friends, like the people closest to me in the world who I want their support from during this thing. And they're literally side by side with me to keep me going and encouraging me and basically like being, you know, my brain and my heart when like I was just so tired And they keep you going step by step. And then all of a sudden out in the desert of Texas, I have no cell phone. (laughs) You know, I, I don't know, you know, I have no like close friends there. No one really knows me that well. And like, I just have to keep myself going. And I'm like really, really tired. It's really, really hard. It's really, really hot. And I'm questioning all of the things, right? And you have no one to like give you that pep talk. And so Luckily, you know, all of the racing and the stuff I have done has given me the mental tools to, like, problem solve through that and to kind of take that step back and, like, recognize it, right, as step one, that that's, like, what's going on. And then to kind of step my way through that process of, like, getting myself going and taking the steps necessary to, like, keep me going. but. It, it was very, very, you know, it feels isolating and it feels lonely and you have other competitors out there going through the same things to kind of lean on at times, but they're all doing their own race too. And they're all having their own struggles. And like, you don't want to be a burden on anyone because it is, you're like in a pretty fragile state at times, um, emotionally and physically. And the last thing you want to do is to be, you know, Debbie Downer and to be needing that support from someone else who barely has enough for themselves to keep them going. So it was a tricky thing to navigate. And I think that it's certainly one that probably gets better with experience, but it was just such a big unknown for me never having done anything like that before that it really felt like a brand new mental side of racing that I hadn't seen before.
2: Did you make any friends? Did Fast Peter become your bud or, you know, did you get to run with anyone at any point or were you kind of just by yourself? Fast Peter and I did become buds. So everyone does become quite good friends.
0: You you actually all sleep in 10-man tents. So we had 20 racers that started the event. I think four were doing the four-day event. I'm pretty sure now I have these numbers right. I think it was 20 that started, four were doing the four-day, so that had 16 of us in the six day. And then ten of those finished. Ten of the of us finished the sixth day. So we were able to fit all 20 of us in the beginning in two 10 man tents. And, you know, the tents are quite large. They're like these big teepee like structures. And you sleep like there's that big pole in the middle of the tent. And then you you sleep with your feet at the pole and then kind of your like wheel spokes out, right? And so you fan out. So you have, like, a little bit of space, but there's 10 people in a tent at the end of the day. So you get quite close to people. Through the days of racing, you, like, smell really bad. Everything's getting progressively dirtier. You're getting progressively less worried about, like, infringing on other people's (laughs) business and stuff. So you definitely make friends very, very quickly because you don't have cell phones and things like that. No one wanted to carry extra weight of books or magazines, really, or anything like that either. So once you're done running for the day, you basically go into the tent to kind of relax, unwind, and you just all kind of lay there together wondering what you've gotten yourselves into and what is to come and download from the day and digest that kind of thing. So around camp, it's a very close-knit group. There's a lot of volunteers involved in pulling this kind of thing off and they you get to know a lot of them through the time there as well. Running-wise, I actually was quite lucky. I think that my pace in those first few days did kind of, uh, bounce between several other racers paces. So I did get to see, to overlap with some of them at times and get to talk to them and and get to know them a little bit. And then on that final day, two of the guys that I had, um, run with a little bit earlier in the week, we all by the end of the week had kind of plateaued together at this one steady pace. And so we actually ran the entire last day, which ended up taking us about 15 hours together. So I got to know Joe and Sean very, very well out of everyone in the group, but you definitely get to be pretty close with everyone that's out there.
2: Tracking the race was pretty difficult. I could see that the race organizers were trying to post some updates and I could tell that you were near the front of the race most days, but it did seem pretty much off the grid. Did you like taking a break from technology? i I loved it. I mean, I
0: didn't miss it at all, really. You know, there wasn't ever a time when I wanted to be checking emails or like checking social media or anything like that. And I think part of that is because you know you're really intent on getting through it and it's a really, really hard six days. so your energy goes to that. you know, I had brought my phone along. I was thinking I would take some pictures, do maybe some videos along the way to have kind of like a diary type of thing and I'm so sorry to say I pulled it out one day and I couldn't even do it because quite honestly, I felt so tired and I was just like, I'm not doing this. Like I'm not spending my energy on this. I need to spend my energy on me doing the right things to get me to the finish. So if my, if my phone was disposable, I would have thrown it out at that moment to save weight because I, I that was how much I didn't need to be around it. <laughs>
2: How are the stars at night? Because I think Big Bend Ranch State Park is that dark sky park where you can see the stars really good. Were they as good as you expected?
0: So the first day, night that we got in, we did start the prologue around 430. So just before the sun would be going down and we kind of ran that six miles into camp as the sun was setting and as we cooked dinner and stuff it was like it wasn't super cloudy but it was cloudy right so i was kind of like okay i'm not getting the full picture like it looks nice here you know but like you know come on show me what what there is out here and we went to bed and then i got up from the tent in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and i Haley, literally stepped outside the tent zipped it back down and like looked up and i like gasped because i was like oh my gosh like this is incredible it is breathtaking the sight of the stars out there when they're when it's a clear night it was it's everything that people talk about it was really really cool and actually the night before we headed out there the race takes you gives you the opportunity to head to an observatory that's um, near alpine texas and you can go attend what they call a star party and at the observatory they point out all the constellations as in the dark and you're in just like this big open air kind of amphitheater setting and then you can walk around to their telescopes And so I got to see Saturn that night. I got to see a bunch of constellations just from the observatory
2: too. So I was like looking for those as I was outside of camp. It was really, really cool. So we made a big deal about your packing list and borrowed Betty's phrase as the heavy backpack race. So now that you finished, what did you think about your packing skills? Were those extra socks and shorts worth the extra weight? They totally were. I'd give myself
0: a solid... B plus, A minus in my packing, because honestly, I think, especially considering never having done it before, I think I did a very, very good job of using what I had and everything kind of had its purpose. I think if I was going to do it again, there's, there would be some swaps there, mostly with the food. So before I I say anything about that though, like the things that I did love that I packed was definitely the extra socks and the shorts by day five, I wanted to put those extra shorts on. It was really nice to have clean shorts to wear around camp those other days as well by the end of the week your race clothes smell really really bad and they're almost like standing up on their own they're so like crisp from the salt and everything it's really gross but that said my smash fest queen aero jersey top that i wore so like being a true true triathlete i wore a triathlete aero top as my race top and You know it 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 did really really well because it had the sleeves to protect me from a lot of that sun it has the cooling fabric it kept me cool it's just easy to run in and move in and it like fits snugly under the pack to minimize the chafing so that actually i think is like something all people should take up with their with their race gear planning and i also really enjoyed you know i took my flip-flops i knew that was a luxury item and those were kind of like a sentimental item to me because those are flip-flops i've had on many adventures with some of my best friends over the last few years and it was like it was really nice to have flip-flops but it was also really nice to be able to look at them and like have that memory of my best friends and I knew that they would be at home cheering me on and things like that so I would say go for like some kind of a sentimental item even too if you're packing and thinking of that because you if you don't have contact with people then that kind of thought process is very helpful as you're looking for that mental strength. The one change, like the biggest change I would probably make in my food, Haley, is so in my daily life, I eat a lot of sweets. I eat candy, chips, and things like that. And I didn't bring them on the, the race because one, like chips are quite hard to pack, right? But two, I was like afraid of things melting. And I was like, no, it's just too difficult. I'll bring like actual race fuel, right? But I do really wish that I had some more sweet stuff, some more treats for myself some chips like just the texture of like a potato chip would have been so amazing halfway through the week I think I underestimated the fact that other races I've done when it gets hard you get into an aid station and you have like ice cold water that you can like cool yourself down with you have coke and you have like all of these like buffet of snacks to kind of like pick you up and I just underestimated what it would be like to not have that and I could have brought that for myself, right? I could have provided that for myself. I could have had a plan for that. So that's definitely something I would have swapped out some of the calories for as well.
2: The breakfast payday was not sufficient. You needed a dinner payday as well. I needed a dinner payday. I needed like a mile five payday, a mile 10 and a mile 15 payday. So I checked the weather in in Big Bend Ranch State Park last week, and you said that it was hot, but it seems like you got a little lucky with milder temperatures because it wasn't like 100 degrees. It was like in the 80s, I think. But I believe a big storm did roll through one night. Did the weather, the landscape, or the wildlife create any unexpected challenges? The, The weather... We got very lucky. We got lucky, yes, with the
0: the heat. I guess two years ago, it was hotter than our year. And I think we were told that it was like 89-ish on the hot days, which when you're in those like desert canyons and the sun's beating on you and you're at like 5,000 feet of elevation, it feels much hotter, right? But rain-wise, we did get lucky. So we did have a big storm roll in Wednesday night. And it happened around, like, 9, 9.30 p.m. And we, we go to bed at, like, 8 during the race. So we were all tucked into our sleeping bags in our, like, 10-man tents, like, snoring away, lots of snoring going on. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, you could see the flashes. Like, you saw the lightning flashes as you're, like, lying there against the tent reflecting. And you're like, oh, no, you know. And I'm like, I guess it's like a desert. You can just see really far. That storm's surely not going to come hit us. And then it's getting close. Like you can just tell it's getting closer. And then you start hearing the thunder rumblings and then the rain. And then all of a sudden, Haley, the tent is like swaying. It's like crazy. And I was scared. I was literally scared because not only is it just like scary in general, but there's this giant metal pole holding our tent up. Right. And we're in the middle of the desert. (laughs) And I'm like, So I finally just sit up in my sleeping bag and look around at the other people. And I'm like, is no one worried about what's going on right now? (laughs) And then they're all sleeping. Fast Peter is over there fast asleep, right? So no, then everyone sat up and they were like, yeah. And we're all like, what do we do? Like no one, there's nothing you could do. You just had to like sit and wait. And then we realized that there was a small little flood forming in our tent too, right? So we were like oh no so then we had to move fast peter up to the high ground because all of his stuff who and he by the way wasn't even using a sleeping mat he had like zero things with him the whole week but so he had to like come sleep up in between the rest of us we had to get rid of that like flood situation make sure it was all under control um the race people were awesome and were coming out to like restake in our tents and make sure we were all fine and safe but that was kind of wild had we been out on course during that like I don't even want to think about that because it was, it was, it was a flash flooding type of situation. So the next day, actually we had to delay the start for a couple hours and until the race vehicles could get out to the aid station safely and kind of check the course. And then they actually did have to alter the course a little bit. They did like an out and back at one section instead of a loop because the, the loop just, we couldn't verify it was all good and safe down in that like technical part of the trail. So again, that would have, that would have been really tough. You know, the race, luckily, yeah, because of timing and things like that, it was okay. So wildlife, Haley. I knew that there were tarantulas in the desert, but I didn't know that they just like roam around freely, right? For everyone to see. Did you think there was a tarantula park? Yeah. (laughs) No. I guess I just thought that like all wildlife, it was like a very, very rare thing to see them, right? It would be like once in a blue moon, you might spot a tarantula, but no. They're just kind of walking around everywhere for you to see. And I mean, it's not like they're like ants or anything like that out there. But you definitely I saw like a handful easily of tarantulas throughout the time there. And one morning, like they were packing up the tents at camp and there was they folded up the bottom and there's like one under the tent where other not myself, thank goodness, other people have been sleeping. You know, he's just like hanging out, but I guess tarantulas don't aren't really worrisome like they're not super biting bitey for spiders (laughs) so you don't really have to worry about them I don't think you want to provoke them in any way but they're not like a, a terrible thing that you have to avoid or anything like that they're just kind of scary looking rattlesnakes were a thing but luckily for me there was a guy and the guy that I know of who saw two of them he was running in front of me each time he saw them. So I don't know if he cleared them from the road or the trail or whatever before I got to it, but I was I was happy that Daniel was doing that for me. And I didn't come across any rattlesnakes. I saw like a normal looking snake at one point, but he didn't seem too threatening. I saw a lot of longhorn cattle. That was that was out there. And they seemed more afraid of humans than than anything else. And just kind of once we got a little close, they would run away. But it was cool to see things that exist in the desert for sure. I didn't feel threatened by any means by any of them.
2: So my numbers might be a little bit off here, but I counted 10 finishers in the six-day event finisher picture on the race website. And I thought there were 18 starters. You said 16, maybe, maybe two people just ran off <laughs> at the very beginning, but did you ever think that you might not make the finish?
0: Yeah, there was. So Tuesday night was my hardest night. And basically I actually, I, so I did the medical study that was going on throughout the week And as part of that, you get weighed after every stage. And so between check-in and the end of the first competitive stage on Monday, I lost 10 pounds. And then after the stage on Tuesday, I had lost another three pounds. So obviously a lot of that was the dehydration, the water weight being at altitude, right? Like things like that. And just working like really hard to stay hydrated there. But my body was just, it was working like between racing with the heavy pack, trying to recover, trying to eat and drink enough. My body was definitely working. And that caught up to me after I finished on Tuesday. And I was having a really, really hard time getting dinner down, which is like, you know, short of finishing your stage, that's probably the next important thing because you need those calories to recover and to get ready for the next day. So it took me um, like over three hours, I want to say, to eat my little baggie that I have macaroni and cheese. And luckily, there were some very, very patient folks. Um, The medical team there was like, I basically was like, I know you can't do too much for me, but maybe you can like coach me through how to eat this. (laughs) And, you know, they were awesome. Like they let me sit in the like quiet of their tent, get it down and just like helped kind of like keep me calm too. That like it was okay. It was just like anything else. I just had to do a one bite at a time and get through it. But that was definitely the night where I was like, this is going to be... Like if I can get through this, I feel like I can continue to problem solve my way through it. And I did. So, you know, the great thing with stage racing I learned is that you almost always have a chance the next day to be like making it good again. Right. So that was kind of a cool thing because I did. I I learned so much each day and each day I tried to do it a little bit better. And I felt like I was I was kind of figuring that out more and more through through the week despite getting more and more tired. So. That was definitely a big thing. And I, you know, luckily I did manage to get pretty good sleep through the whole week on average. And The people who really suffered in the sleep department or like the nights even where I felt like I got only three or four hours at most, the stage the next day was even was really, really hard. So those I think are the factors that really were at play. But after I got through that on Tuesday, I was like, there is nothing that's going to stop me from getting getting to the end.
2: And were you thinking about racing the whole time after Tuesday, or was it just about finishing?
0: It was mostly about finishing. They they actually don't post like results every day or anything like that. Um, for I know I tried to, to find them. To <laughs> <laughs> so we had no idea. You know, like I knew a general idea of who was ahead of me that day and who was behind me that day, and I knew, you know, probably about how much behind the people behind me at least were, but I couldn't. I didn't know how ahead of the people were for me. So. You know, and I'm not going to go like, excuse me, what time did you come in and like keep my little notebook, you know, and no one there was (laughs) doing that. And so I just, you know, given that it was such a new experience for me and I just wanted to focus on doing my best every day. And with that, I was for sure still racing, you know, like I don't want it to come across like I wasn't trying my hardest to race. I was just focusing on on doing my best and pushing my hardest. Would that have been different if I had information about like where I stood maybe you know probably if I knew I was closer further from certain people or time goals that I had or anything like that maybe but I was doing my best for sure to keep myself racing and like use the tricks that I could each day to keep myself pushing
2: you did win and your win earned you three thousand dollars for the first place female finish and six points toward your entry at the ultra trail du mont blanc does that mean we'll see you lining up at UTMB next summer The million dollar question, Haley, well,
0: everyone will have to wait with bated breath until like mid January when the lottery results come out for UTMB. So I still have to go through the entry process. I can though now at least for two years, I have a good entry into that lottery for UTMB and we just keep our fingers crossed. So I will definitely, you know, keep all of the listeners posted on that.
2: And do you think you'll do another stage race? Are you hooked? Did you have fun or was this one and done?
0: I could see myself doing another one for sure. You know, they are tough to fit in as I'm still racing Ironman competitively for sure. But prize money here was really good. That's certainly an attractive feature. I like the the problem-solving adventure aspect of it. And I'm just not sure if those like desert conditions that a lot of the stage racing seems to be in are really the best for me or like where I really enjoy racing. So I don't know. Maybe I need to find like a, a Blue Ridge Mountain stage race or
2: something like that. But I don't think it'll be my last. I'll say that. Well, I'm glad you're back. Congratulations on the win. And hopefully you have some downtime scheduled now so you can prep for Thanksgiving and the holidays. Yes, I'm looking forward to taking some downtime
0: through the holidays, catching up on life, and maybe even Haley starting some early season Christmas shopping which for our listeners, we have, you know, another great supporter of the Iron Women podcast with Form Swim Goggles and anyone else out there who's looking to get an early start on their holiday shopping for the triathletes or swimmers in their life, Form Swim Goggles for a limited time from November 10th, which has passed by the time you're listening to this, to December 14th. You can get $20 off of Form Swim Goggles with the code IRONWOMEN at formswim.com. And this is exclusive for you guys listening to the podcast. You can use it once this holiday season. And I think this would be like the perfect gift for the
2: triathlete that seems to have it all already. Right. Because Form Swim Goggles, they they show your pace or any metrics that you, you can select different metrics through the app, but they show up right in the... Gasket of your swim goggle. And Alyssa, one of the cool things for you, I think you should be using your form swim goggles, is that they can actually like they count your laps even when you're kicking. So a lot of watches that say they work in the pool, they're, you know, they're based on your arm moving. Form swim goggles gut can go, they'll calculate your your pace even while you're kicking. And I bet some nice, easy kicking is probably good recovery for 165 miles through the desert i bet and you can just see how slow you're going like go as slow as possible while still making forward progress i love that
0: idea i think i'll I'll have a lot of that in my future for sure and that is a really great feature because i can't tell you how many times i have seen someone say that their watch didn't pick up their kicking yards
2: I know it's frustrating, right? We like our data to be accurate. So $20 off Form Swim goggles now through December 14th for the special person in your life. Use the code IRONWOMEN at formswim.com.
0: And Haley, we're bringing back the mailbag questions for this week. So we have a great question here. And if people have mailbag questions, you can always send them to us at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. This one comes in from Brandy, who she says she quit her job almost two years ago to try to qualify to race as a pro triathlete. Go Brandy. She actually gives us her blog link, and we can throw that into the show notes too, because it is about the journey of a 40-year-old newbie pro, and she did. She qualified at Challenge Cancun in April. She'll be racing her first pro race at Ironman Cozumel in just over three weeks. So yay, Brandy. We're super excited for you. This is also going to be her first Ironman in six years. So while she's really excited, she's a little bit nervous. So she wants our advice for a first time pro race. What are the biggest differences from racing as an age grouper? What do we wish we knew before our first pro race etiquette rules? Is there a special handshake? Any insight we can share is appreciated.
2: Alyssa, is there a special handshake? Did I miss that? If it was, I don't think you gave it to me before my first pro race at Iron <laughs> Cabo. So, oh, thanks for oh, that. that secret one. <laughs> 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 That's right. I don't think there's a special handshake. Is there? I mean, etiquette rules. I'm. I mean, I think it's the same as any race, but. My biggest advice to Brandy would be to be really proud of yourself. My first, my first pro race at Ironman Arizona in 2012, a long time ago now, I remember, I think I handled it really well where just every time I hit like a mile marker on the bike, I was like, holy cow, you're doing this. And like said something really good to myself or like a five mile marker, not every mile marker. That's a lot of, that's a lot of praise, 112 miles of praise. But I mean, if you could do it every mile, then do it. But I just, I kept telling myself that all day long, just being like, hey, you're doing this, you're in this, you're doing great. And I think that's how you have to be. It's kind of fun to do something new. And for the first time, there's not a lot of pressure. Just go enjoy that experience and you're going to learn a lot, but there's only one way to learn that and that's to do it. I agree. And I think things that are different, I think to just, you know,
0: mentally really be prepared for less people around you. That is going to be a huge, huge difference. You know, as the females, we often get the wave starts that are at the back of the race, right? And so you're often starting towards the back and then maybe working your way up into like the bulk of the people, but you're around people like all day and you're seeing people, um, you know, you have just people around to race with. And you might not realize how much of a difference it is if all of those people disappeared to be like having to race your hardest still. So it's definitely a big change and one that if you can just kind of mentally like walk yourself through how that's going to play out and maybe, you know, think of some things that you'll you'll tell yourself and you'll be thinking of as you hit these mile markers, especially on the bike, which tends to be probably the loneliest section for people. I also think that one of the biggest things is just I I don't know maybe it's because you are like more by yourself it just it feels more like you're focusing on yourself I don't know if when I was racing around people a lot more I was able to kind of give more smiles and more encouragement to other people and things like that and kind of to kind of remove myself from my own head more but you you are you're going to be in your own head a lot more and so learning to just kind of exist in that space and be okay with that and to embrace it, I think is where you're going to find yourself being able to race your hardest in the pro rings.
2: That is great advice. And, and it can't be as bad as being in the desert for six days alone like Alyssa. So it goes by faster than you think. It goes by fast. So those get through those lonely moments and it will change. And is there anything you wish you'd known before your first pro race, Alyssa? I'm trying to think of something I wish I had known. I mean, I guess I was really nervous at the pro meeting before the race. And I don't think that was worth being nervous about. If you have questions, ask. Just don't go into it. Like, don't think that you can't ask something because you're new. Plenty of people, I've been sitting in a Kona pro meeting and plenty of people have like questions that are almost as elementary as, you know, how long is the bike course? That kind of thing. And the big thing is don't, don't, Go into it thinking that you can't ask something because you aren't Miranda Carfrey. You can ask questions, ask questions, because probably a lot of other people have the same question, and there's no, there is no dumb question. Just don't, don't be the person who doesn't know what's happening the next day.
0: Yeah, and to that point, you know, the pro meeting is where I've gotten to know a lot of people and how I know a lot of people, right? And so if you go in there and you're a little bit nervous or intimidated or anything, and um, you don't talk to people, like you're never going to meet the other pro women, really. So. Try and go in, you know, introduce yourself, meet the other women, sit down in that area with them. Like, don't sit off by yourself or anything like that. You know, everyone's super, super friendly. And I think it does sometimes just take you like saying, hi, my name is Brandy, you know, like. Um, you can say, this is my first pro race. You know, people will be excited. They'll talk to you. I think people think that like everyone else is friends outside of that first and stuff. And it's like, no, no, no. We're all just kind of congregating there and and saying hi and everyone's welcome. Um, it's a very, very friendly space. You just, you know, go into it with like that, that mindset and an open mind.
2: And good luck. Have fun. Uh, We'll, we'll have to check those results, but have a great race, Brandy. And Haley, Keeping with the theme that is races, which are adventures, we
0: have a guest on today to talk to us about adventure racing. So in an adventure race, teams travel together all the time. And depending on the race, they have to stay together within 10 to 100 meters at all time. And so the goal of an adventure race is that the team has to figure out how to get all members of the team across the course as efficiently possible as possible. So there is a new movement called Women of AR that is starting up. And Abby Perkis is here to tell us a little bit about that movement and a little bit on Abby first. She first volunteered at an adventure race for the first time in 2007. And she was certain she would never actually race an adventure race, which does don't all triathletes feel that way too, I think sometimes. Four months later, she lined up at the start of a six-hour race with her new husband and future teammate, Brent Friedland. The one-time competitive swimmer has since raced in dozens of adventure races around the world from a few hours to several days. In 2015, she and Brent started Rootstock Racing, a non-profit organization dedicated to hosting adventure-based events in and around eastern Pennsylvania. You guys might remember me talking about the Stockville race that I did last november and that was a rootstock racing event as part of the rootstock racing team abby has won two u.s adventure racing association national championships in 2017 and 2018. above all else she believes that successful adventure racers are able to come together as a team creating a unit that's better than the sum of its individual parts she spends her time off the race course teaching college history and writing about post-world war ii american cities So as you can tell, we have a lot to talk to Abby about, and she graciously took time out of her schedule as a busy mother as well. She has a five-year-old and a new four-month-old. And so we will hear all about some adventure racing with Abby next.
2: This is Haley, and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits, but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups, so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the Form Swim Goggles, and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com.
0: Earlier this year, our sponsor, Wahoo Fitness, did a huge giveaway here on the podcast. We caught up with Jen Matro, who won the Element Bolt bike computer. Jen, it's been a few months since you won our Wahoo Fitness sweepstakes. How has life been since you became a Wahooligan? Alyssa, is it weird to say that I love my bike computer? The Element Bolt does it all. I can see any metric I need, power, distance, cadence, but I have to say that my absolute favorite feature is how you can enter a destination into the phone app and it will instantly create a route to guide you there with the Bolt. I used that a lot in Nice when I was there for the 70.3 World Championships.
2: Thanks, Jen. We love hearing your feedback. If any of our listeners want to give the bike trainers, bike computers, and heart rate monitors that make up the Wahoo Fitness ecosystem of products a try, head to wahoofitness.com. Hi,
0: Abby. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So we're super excited to chat with you a little bit today about the Women of Adventure Racing campaign. But first, let's define for our listeners, what exactly is adventure racing?
1: Yeah. So adventure racing is a team sport that consists, um, typically there's kind of four key elements. It has some kind of biking that is typically done on mountain biking, but it may be road riding or trail riding or gravel. Um, It has some form of paddling, typically canoeing or kayaking. It has trekking or running or overland travel, but all done on foot. And then the core kind of element of the sport is navigation. So you are moving across this unmarked course, using a map and compass to get yourself from one checkpoint to the next kind of in the shortest amount of time possible.
2: So that sounds like a lot of gear. I mean you bike, paddle, you need some shoes, you need a compass, I'm assuming, and maps. So coming from a triathlete, I guess that's that's saying something because I have an entire garage full of gear. How do you get into adventure racing? I mean when the gear can seem a little daunting.
1: Yeah, so the bigger races, you know, adventure racing, adventure races range at the lowest end, you know, a sprint is 2 to 6 hours and then they go all the way up to 10 days. And certainly when you get into the, you know, multi-day races, your gear closet gets pretty robust. But when you're just getting into the sport, really what you need is a bike that will work on trails or gravel. You need a compass and you need a pair of shoes you know, sometimes a whistle, sometimes a hydration vest, but the the gear requirements for shorter races are relatively manageable. The race will provide you with a boat. They usually have paddles and PFDs that they can offer you. The race provides all of the maps. So it's really, if you look at, for example, a gear list for a six hour race, it's far less than you need for an Ironman triathlon.
0: I'm going to have to take a look at that because I don't know, I don't know. It still just seems like a lot of, a lot of extra things, but you're right. When you boil it down, it's really, it's not that much gear because so much of it is just kind of on foot and with a compass, which is pretty easy to acquire that. So I also wanted to you to weigh in on this. You know me through one of your races with Rootstock Racing when I did the Stockville, which was like an on-foot navigation race. And that's like my only foray into the adventure racing scene, which is like very, I don't know, is that even really called an adventure race by, by definition, kind of? <laughs>
1: um Most people would probably not call that an adventure race because it doesn't have the multi-sport element, but the maps are super similar to what you would find
0: in one of our adventure races. So in terms of the quality of maps, it's, it's comparable. I'm still going to have to find my way onto a mountain bike then to actually become an adventure racer one of these days. But (laughs) it seems like a lot of the athletes that I did that event with, they are proper adventure races and they're doing the short events. They're also doing the multi-day events. And, you know, one of the common links we had is that they actually began in endurance sports through doing triathlon and Ironman. So why do you think that adventure racing is kind of a natural transition for some people from that long distance triathlon racing? Yeah. So
1: there's kind of a few different categories of how folks get into adventure racing. One is just the folks that love being outside, grew up outside, grew up with a, you know, in the woods figuring out how to get around and adventure racing kind of is a natural leveling up from that. You also do, as you said, see a lot of people getting in through other endurance sports. And when you talk to them, a lot of them say, you know, I kind of got burnt out on marathoning. I got burnt out on triathloning. We have a number of, you know, collegiate athletes in the sport. They say they were looking for something a little bit different. They were looking for something where they didn't have to train by heart rate and they didn't have to hit certain paces and they could just kind of go out in the woods for hours and hours and have time on their feet and time in the saddle. And really, I mean, as the the name says, really have adventures. And I think the team piece is also really critical to that. Advent racing at its core is actually a co-ed sport, which is one of the most unique things about it. So at the premier level, all teams have at least one man and one woman on the team. And you have these really intense intimate experiences with your teammates. So for folks that, you know, have spent a really long time in more individually focused sports, I think the team component adds just just a level of community that is really hard to find elsewhere.
2: Abby, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but can I ask about how adventure racing is doing right now? Because I feel like I have friends who their dads were into Ironman and then got into adventure racing and went all over the world. They did the Eco Challenge. And then I feel like they kind of started to go away. and And just recently, I have heard more about adventure racing, about maybe even some that are like, more publicized. And, and then of course, Alyssa has brought in this whole like world of the orienteering into my life. Has adventure racing gone through a cycle or is that just me imagining things? No,
1: I think, I think you are hitting the nail on the head. There's kind of generational cycles. So many people in the late nineties and early two thousands learned about adventure racing through eco challenge. And there hasn't been kind of an eco challenge type event in 18 years at this point. I think 2002, 2004 may have been the last one. So you see the population of adventure racers getting a little bit older. You don't see the same kind of influx into the sport. Ironically, Eco Challenge is, is airing again in 2020. It actually just filmed, they had the race in Fiji uh, last month. So there's some speculation right now that adventure racing is about to hit an uptick. It's kind of this existential question in the sport right now right like we have for instance at, at our rootstock races we are at a number of our races we kind of reach critical capacity for them to be what we want them to be and when you they get much bigger you kind of lose some of that adventure they become more exterra type races so there's a lot of people in the sport that are questioning you know do we really want to see more people enter the sport on one hand so much attention is going toward growing the sport. and On other hand, there's a number of people that question um, the viability of that. But I think with Eco Challenge coming back, everyone is pretty excited to see what that will bring and what that will do. There's also a movie coming out with Mark Wahlberg called Arthur the King about the maybe 2014 Event Racing World Championships when a team from sweden adopted a dog on the course in ecuador and he ended up doing kind of the last two legs of the race with hip with them got to the finish line with them one of the racers adopted the dog and brought him back to sweden so they're making a movie of this and everybody's excited to see where that goes too
2: i think Alyssa is gonna be first in line to see that movie i feel like that's a combination of all of her favorite things mark Wahlberg adventure and dogs. dogs this is like made for me this is great i can't wait and
0: abby so we have the cyclical kind of nature, and then, you know, we're expecting a little bit of uptick with participation and kind of through these years, what have you noticed about the female specific participation? You mentioned teams are co-ed. So does that mean that women are kind of very high participants with adventure racing?
1: Historically, and you can see this in some of the old eco challenge videos, there was this sense that women were were viewed a little bit as mandatory gear, you know, in order to compete at that top level, you needed to have a woman on your team. And for a variety of reasons, there's kind of been barriers to entry for women. They don't necessarily have the same, historically, they haven't had the same venues to acquire these skills to learn to to master these sports. Navigation in some ways has proven, you know, in Boy Scouts, boys learn navigation from the time they're little, but girls don't necessarily have those same opportunities, or at least haven't historically. So there was this sense that in order to get your team to that top level. You needed to bring a woman on and figure out how to get her up to speed. The sport has evolved in such a way that, A, women are much stronger athletes than they were in the past, and women have fewer barriers to entry. There's more opportunities to excel at these sports individually. There's orienteering clubs all over the country and all over the world that offer women opportunities to get the navigational chops that they perhaps didn't have in the past. So, We're at a point in the sport where women are not just mandatory gear, and I I put that in quotes, but really contributing members of the team. There's, For instance, there's coaches out there who focus specifically on coaching women adventure racers, and I work with one of those coaches, and my own experience with her has been so empowering and so affirming, and, and I feel like a totally different part of the team just by working with her. So there's this dual question, how do we get more women into the sport, but then also how do we create an environment in the sport that feels inclusive, that feels welcoming to make sure that we're thinking about retention also. And these are questions that the sport is thinking about in, you know, and the people in the sport are thinking about in pretty meaningful ways. And those conversations are having at a, happening at a grassroots level and they're also happening at the national level, kind of at, the, at a structural level.
2: Well, I'll say here on the Iron Women podcast, there have been some conversations just from Alyssa primarily and now talking to you that, you know, you're kind of piquing my interest. But Alyssa was telling me, you know, leading into this interview about something called the Women of Adventure Racing campaign. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Absolutely. So the Women in Adventure Racing, Women of Adventure Racing, the um, kind of hashtag is Women of AR campaign started in 2017 because there was an there was interest in getting more women at the national championship historically the national championship has been for coed kind of open teams in terms of age and then co co-ed, ma- coed masters level teams the masters age has actually increased as teams have gotten stronger so now it's i think each person has to be 45 it was actually lo- younger when i started the sport in 2012 the the USARA championship opened to single gender teams as well. And they saw a number of all male teams coming, but until... 2017, as of 2016, there were no all-female teams. So Stephanie Ross, who is a veteran adventure racer, she, at that point, had been a long-time very successful race director, and she's a member of the board of the U.S. Adventure Racing Association, said that she really wanted to change that, and she created a scholarship campaign to offer $300 scholarships to all-female teams that qualify to go to the race. And I think that first year, I believe they had 10 scholarships.
0: That's awesome. And so in 2017, it started. What has happened with the campaign since those in these last two seasons?
1: So there were four all women's teams at that first nationals in 2017. And since then, more and more people have gotten involved in the campaign. So after 2017, a racer uh, Jim Benton, out of I believe Kentucky, and his wife Valerie Hardcastle, that they reached out to Steph and doubled the number of scholarships available. There have been three race organizations since then that offer matching grants. So if a all female, female team qualifies at their race, they get the $300 Women of AR scholarship, and then also the race organization. Will offer an uh, $300 more dollars. So those those teams are adventure addicts racing out of Virginia. They actually put on the first all women's adventure race in the United States, or it was part of a, a larger effort. But they are kind of the longest run rim uh, mountain racing out of Wisconsin. And then uh, the organization that I co own, Rootstock Racing, also we offered a, another $300 matching grant.
2: And forgive me, Abby. I just I. When you say national championship, like is your national championship? Is it always in the same place? Does it move around? Is it always like a specific number of hours or days? And is that the same whether you're on a co-ed team, coed masters, single gender male, single gender female team? Is it always the same course?
1: That's a great question. Um, so unlike Ironman and Kona, the U.S. Adventure Racing Championship moves around every single year. So this past year, the race was in Boone, North Carolina, just a few weeks ago. The year before that, it was in Indiana. The year before that, it was in Pennsylvania. Um, there's some talk now about going out to the Pacific Northwest in the next couple years. The course is always 30 hours long. And it always includes those same basic components. So running or trekking, biking, paddling and navigation. But the 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 course is left to the local race designer with input from the national organization.
0: And do teams have to qualify at a previous 30 hour event or can you do shorter events to qualify and then go race nationals?
1: Yeah, there's a list of qualifiers across the country they are regional qualifiers, and they range in lengths from certainly 10 to 12 hours. There may be a few that are even a little bit shorter than that, all the way up through, you know, there's a race in Florida that's 72 hours that at least historically has been a nationals qualifier. I'm not sure if it is this upcoming year. Anyone in the open division has to qualify. So that would be co-ed open, all women or all male. The master's teams, in fact, do not have to qualify.
2: Abby, when we talk about this hashtag women of AR campaign, it seems like there's been a lot of support. Has there been any backlash? I'm just wondering, are there any all men's teams out there being like, hey, this isn't fair that these women get these $300 scholarships? Or or has everyone been supportive? They want to see more people out there, more people enjoying adventure racing, realizing that, you know, if the sport grows, it's going to help everyone.
1: I have heard rumors of some backlash. I have not experienced it personally, but I have heard a few instances of people saying, well, why do these, you know, why does this cohort of teams get kind of an extra boost and others don't? I personally think it's fantastic. I think the campaign is doing a lot to bring more women to the national championship, which is a really good start. And I think the next phase of the campaign will be to expand outward, not just to bring more women to the national championship, but also to bring more women into the sport. I think there's a few reasons for that, right? Part of it is you gr- you bring more women to the sport and you grow adventure racing because when you get somebody new into the sport, it's contagious. They get excited, they tell their friends about it, their friends come in and whether they become an all-female team or a co-ed team, it's more teams in the sport. I also think when you have more women at an event that the, some of those questions of in- inclusivity, questions of welcoming fall by the wayside. When, when women become a critical mass and a critical voice, There are fewer feelings of exclusivity.
0: Well, hopefully we have some iron women out there listening who might be thinking about finding their way into the adventure racing sport. So where can women go to find out more about this campaign and applying for that scholarship? So I would start
1: at the USARA website, which is usara.com. And there you'll find a list of all of the qualifiers across the United States. Any women's team at any qualifier is open to getting one of these scholarships, to earning one of these scholarships. So all they have to do is podium or win. It depends on the race, but it's, it's less about specific races or specific teams and more about finding the right qualifier that works for you, whether that's regionally or in terms of the right distance, the right disciplines in terms of, you know, is a race a little more exterior? Is it a little more strategy and nav intensive and signing up for it?
2: Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining us today, teaching us a little bit about adventure racing. We'll make sure we link to that usara.com website in our show notes, as well as good luck to you and Rootstock Racing as you, I'm sure, plan all of your late fall events, but thank you again. Great. Thanks for having me. This is Alyssa. And as a triathlete, I am all
0: about efficiency. That's why I'm excited that Velofix is now a part of the live feisty community. Velofix is North America's largest mobile bike shop fleet. And they know that your most valuable asset is time. Velofix will meet you wherever you are at in your day. So you don't miss a beat. Or if you have some time, you can hang out in the mobile bike shop and enjoy a complimentary cup of coffee to learn about the service being done. Interested? Here's how it works. Head to VeloFix.com or call 1-855-VeloFix, set your appointment, and the local VeloFix technician will come directly to you. Book your service today using promo code FEISTY so they know you're an Iron Women listener. The first 100 listeners to book today using promo code FEISTY will receive a major tune for the price of a minor tune. Again, that's VeloFix.com and promo code FEISTY to
2: enhance your bike service experience today. Okay, Alyssa, you've done a six-day stage race. You have done the Stockville, and navigation race. Abby said neither of those really count as an adventure race because they're both just running. Do you think you'll add a adventure race to your resume? I don't even think you knew this when you were asking this question. I actually
0: did sign up for... Um, An adventure race because with Rootstock Racing, they had a a race that's coming up with a special anniversary price of $36 and it's happening over Memorial Day weekend. So they host a 36-hour adventure race and the price was too good to pass up for like just dipping your toes into like the adventure racing scene. My teammate will be my boyfriend. And we're just going to make a goal to borrow all the gear, like not buy all the gear yet. Just try and borrow as much as we can do the race, see how we feel about it and that kind of thing. So next, yeah, next Memorial day, I'm all in, I'm
2: going, I'm doing it so I can finally get that stamp. (laughs) You tell Abby, I am an adventure racer now. That's pretty cool. And $36. What a great, great deal. Yeah, so
0: I'm excited about that. And in addition to Adventure Addicts, Rootstock also hosts an all-women's race. It's a two-hour event, part of their day-long adventure race festival, Adventure Race Philly, which is scheduled for next year for early June. That festival includes a two-hour family race, which sounds super cool, and a four-hour twilight race that pushes up against sunset. They partner with the Girl Scouts of Eastern Pennsylvania for the Tough Cookie Adventure Race, which is dedicated to getting more girls out in the woods, That's going to be October 3rd. So check out all of those events, all things I think you guys would love to be a part of and can maybe help kind of spark your interest in adventure racing a little bit. And finally, there is a Facebook page for the Women of AR campaign, which is facebook.com slash women of AR. And right now it's just a group of people talking loosely about being a female in the sport, but there's going to be, you know, as the community builds, there will be all sorts of things to come from there.
2: So we will link to that in the show notes as well. So much good stuff happening and lots of ways to break up your day-to-day swim, bike, run routine. For anyone who hasn't joined our Patreon community, you can check it out at patreon.com forward slash live feisty. And thank you to everyone who is supporting us. Another way you can support the podcast is by leaving us a rating, or review on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Alyssa, I hope you get some sleep and recover well, and I will talk to you next week. Bye, Haley. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadesky and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.